Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name is Andy Serby. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Judge Shelley Chapman, who retired from the Southern District of New York's bankruptcy bench last year. During her time there, Judge Chapman oversaw a veritable who's who of famous Chapter 11 mega cases, including Century 21, Aero Mexico, and Lehman Brothers, the last of those being the largest Chapter 11 case ever filed. I taught that she's extensively sought after for her mediation expertise with high profile engagements under her belt, such as Purdue Pharma, Sears, and the Title III PREPA Puerto Rico Commonwealth case. Prior to her time on the bench, Judge Chapman was a partner at Wilkie, Farr, and Gallagher. She's since rejoined the firm as a senior counsel following her retirement from the bench. She's also the chair of the firm's Alternative Dispute Resolution Practice Group. Judge Chapman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for having me. So just to dive right in here, uh, let's get into some background. I'd like to hear what your reasons were for pursuing law and eventually for getting into bankruptcy law specifically. Not an easy question to answer, actually, all these years in retrospect. I was always intrigued by the courtroom, and I think always envisioned myself being in the courtroom as a trial lawyer. I can't exactly tell you the genesis of that, given my background which is to say that I was the first person in my family to go to college, let alone professional school. The roots of that remain a mystery, but I always envisioned myself in a courtroom. And once I started practicing, indeed felt immediately at home in the courtroom. My reasons for pursuing bankruptcy are it's pure serendipity. I was a young, brash litigator in uh, actually in Chicago. I started my career in the Chicago office of what was then called Sidley and Austin. And I got into the courtroom quite a lot, including trying a case when I was a first year associate. I think I was too green to actually be scared. And then when I moved to New York, a case I was handling turned into a bankruptcy. The defendant, the creditor was pursuing its default debt. And I was instructed as a fifth-year associate to follow the case into the bankruptcy court in the Eastern District of New York. Lo and behold, I won. I shut a debtor down on the in the first few weeks of the case. And from that moment on, it was decreed that I was a bankruptcy lawyer. And that's kind of how it happened. Like many things in life, it was accidental, if you will. I had not taken bankruptcy in law school, still haven't taken bankruptcy, but I think I've learned a thing or two about it. I think you're more qualified to teach it at this point. I do guest teach from time to time, uh, and I really rather enjoy it. That segues really nicely into once the bankruptcy bug kind of bit you, how'd you end up deciding that you were going to pursue a judgeship? Because that is also not the most common choice. Again, another kind of fate played a hand. I don't think I would have had the confidence, perhaps, to pursue a judgeship, but somebody in the community suggested that I apply for the opening that came about on the Southern District bench. My immediate reaction is, you're joking, right? Because the Southern District of New York bankruptcy bench, it was, and I think still is, you know, it's the Yankee Stadium of the bankruptcy world. And and I was just kind of a kid on the sidelines. But I applied and much to my surprise and delight, I was selected. And it was just the most, I think, one of the most significant events of, of my lifetime. And I don't know if you'll get to the question, but I would say deciding to leave the bench was one of the most difficult decisions I ever had to make. I would imagine so. It's formed such a major component of your career and also your life to this point. And so quickly following a tough decision like that, I'm interested in how you ended up 
back at Wilkie and kind of how it feels to be back post your time on the bench? Wilkie was my legal home for almost 10 years before I went on the bench. And it was a, a wonderful group of bankruptcy practitioners and a terrific firm uh, at large. The, you know, everyone talks about a firm culture. It really meant something to me. And the firm at that time also was supportive of my desire to continue to work on a flexible time schedule. This was long pre-COVID, but while I still had two daughters in school and the firm said, you know, uh, we will accommodate whatever you need to do. And I thought that was pretty terrific. And I was instrumental in founding the Women's Professional Development Committee at Wilkie. As you may or may not have noticed, Andy, in your travels through our world, there aren't a lot of women practitioners of my vintage. Not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm among <laughs> the more senior practitioners of the art of bankruptcy. So when it came time to leave the bench, which was precipitated by COVID and by the job that I love kind of being taken away, if you will, which is to say the excitement of the courtroom and the back and forth mm -hmm. among the parties, I was very gratified to be welcomed back to Wilkie and it seemed like the right place to go. They were willing to support my new found interest in mediation. And this first year has gone by in, in the blink of an eye and I, I couldn't be happier to be back. Not a fan of the Zoom proceedings, I take it. I am not a fan of the Zoom proceedings. I think that uh, we did learn a lot by using Zoom. I think Zoom is effective to keep costs down and to move things along, but there's no substitute for looking out into the courtroom and having the ability to look people in the eye and mm -hmm. tell them to go back and sit in my conference room until they work something out. And, you know, a lot of bankruptcy deals happen in the hallway. Zoom doesn't have a hallway. Yeah, I, uh, I understand that breakout rooms on Zoom are not don't really act as a good substitute for taking a time out, for lack of a better phrase. They don't. So obviously, we've talked a lot about the experience of judgeship and getting into it and coming back to Wilkie. So I'm really interested in any ways that your time on the bench has kind of like shifted your perspective or the way that you approach law now that you're back in private practice, how your view of the world has shifted now that you've spent so much time as a judge? Yes. Well, it's interesting because when you're a judge, people have a limited ability to disagree with you other than taking an appeal, of course, and criticize you. So since I've been back, I kiddingly say that I think I've now completed the apology tour where people <laughs> have told me things, things that I did that didn't sit well with them. I prided myself while I was on the bench in always being civil, trying my best to see both sides of every issue, paying close attention to all parties, whether they were pro se litigants or creditors or folks from the largest firms. And I've it gives me new insight into how one should approach a court. Certainly, I talk a lot to my colleagues about the difficulties of being a judge and how daunting it is to look out into the courtroom and when you're a judge, it's just you with a one or two person staff. And there you are looking out at the major firms with, you know, three, four, five folks there and, and teams of associates at the ready to do work. So it's just helped me have a perspective on how to practice in a way that is responsive to the needs and the challenges facing a presiding judge. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, like taking roles in mediation, as you still currently do, is 
kind of a hybrid role where you're private practice, but you're still kind of in a balls and strikes middle position. So there's kind of some friendliness there. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think that the success of mediation depends on being able to provide an evaluative perspective. You know, this is how I would approach this issue. This is how I would rule. And perhaps offering an opinion as to how the presiding judge would rule, since I do know a large number of them having been their colleagues for many years, but also really understanding what I call the three-dimensional chess aspect of bankruptcy, the game theory aspect of bankruptcy, which I, I truly love and I try to convey my excitement about it to young people. I really think there's no more exciting uh, field to practice in in the law. Mediation does afford me the opportunity to bring all of those skills and frankly, things that I love to bear. Absolutely. And mediation obviously presents a whole new set of challenges. And you've handled some really major ones like we've got Endo, Purdue, uh, Mass and Square and others. I'm really interested to hear how you approach cases that have such a significant uh, mass tort element, especially since we're seeing kind of a shift of mass tort litigation wrangling, for lack of a better term into chapter 11. That is true. And uh, as we speak, the Rite Aid first day hearings are taking place, which has a definitely a mass tort component to it. You know, each of the ones cases that you mentioned, each of them was very different from the other. Endo, which is ongoing, and therefore I'm limited in what I can say, is very, very multi-dimensional, involving financial creditors and tort creditors. And it involves Uh, striking a balance between and among those constituencies. So that's presented a number of unique challenges, including the involvement of the Department of Justice. So kind of the architecture of that case has been unique and challenging. I think Purdue, which as you probably know, is now pending before the Supreme Court of the United States, was the case of a lifetime for me. I did that in two rounds uh, negotiating between the Sacklers on the one hand and state attorneys general on the other hand. And once again, it was the component of the involvement of the governmental entities that was among the many things that made it so difficult, so stressful, <laughs> but ultimately so satisfying. And then you mentioned Madison Square, which had its own unique component because terrible facts, indisputably terrible facts, but you had the interests of the claimants on the one side, and then you had a, a nonprofit that wanted to continue its mission of serving underserved youth. Uh, so it was a tremendous challenge to try to arrive at a settlement that fairly compensated the victims while at the same time enabling the clubs to survive the bankruptcy and continue on their mission. One through line in all of these three cases and in mass tort cases generally, I think, is the necessity, the utmost importance of gaining the trust of the survivors, the victims, the claimants, whatever terminology they use. And that really was job one for me in each of those cases. They've gone through a lot, whether they're opioid victims themselves or have lost loved ones, or in the case of Madison Square, the victims of unspeakable sexual abuse. And what I learned is that in addition to the financial compensation, there is tremendous value in allowing these folks to be heard and feel that they're being heard by the court, the powers that be, and that they're able to move on 
from the terrible hurt they endured. I don't think that there's any sense that the money compensation that's available can undo uh, the harm that they suffered. So that's an important lesson that I learned early on, and it makes the work, to me, very, very gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. There's like such a significant human element to that specific variety of work. We touched a little bit on the pending Supreme Court appearance for Purdue, and I'm interested in their in hearing a little bit about the challenges of kind of achieving a mediated success in a case like that, where atop all the other challenges that we talked that we just talked about, you've got ongoing appeals. I think this case was kind of pegged as a as a SCOTUS candidate since day one. So how does that work with that hanging over your head when you're trying to push the envelope forward? Well, that mediation proceeded in two stages. The first mm-hmm. stage, well, it actually proceeded in a number of stages before it got to me. As you probably know, Lane Phillips and Ken Feinberg were the mediators before I came into the picture, and they uh, negotiated various important aspects of the settlement before I got involved. I got involved prior to the confirmation of the plan by Judge Drain in order to bring aboard the remaining state attorneys general who were not on board. After 15 of those states came on board, uh, there was a confirmation hearing, and it wasn't until the appeal was pending after the confirmation that I uh, dealt with the nine remaining states who came colloquially to be called the nine. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that was when the amount of consideration from the Sacklers increased significantly. So that by the time the case got to the Second Circuit, there were no economic stakeholders at all who were opposing the plan. It was solely the U.S. trustee. Uh, There were a number of of pro se's and some Canadian municipalities. Mm -hmm. Came out the way I thought it should come out at the Second Circuit, but it goes on. I feel somewhat limited in in what I can say. Obviously, I have a very significant connection to the case and emotional investment. Um, and, And it gets to the question of how well does the bankruptcy and the tort system fit together? And there's certainly been a lot of lively debate about that lately. But Purdue is itself unique because there would be nothing left of Purdue in the form of a privately held company. It would become a public benefit corporation and it, everything that it would earn, if you will, would go to the creditors and the victims. So it's far different from the so-called Texas two-step cases. And indeed, it's different from other cases in which a company would restructure and emerge from bankruptcy in private hands. Absolutely. And we can't talk about your mediation career without doing at least one question on Puerto Rico. So a lot of moving parts there. What stands out as a challenge or an issue about you've got the private money aspect, union concerns, and a very significant public public entity, you know, governmental aspects as well? Yeah, I'll take a deep breath before I talk about that. <laughs> Again, I, I can't say too much because it's ongoing, but PREPA is the last of the instrumentalities to try to get a plan of adjustment approved. To say it has been difficult is an understatement. And again, as I mentioned, with respect to Endo and Purdue, 
the involvement of the governmental entity, in this case, the Fiscal Oversight Board, presents very unique challenges. Not only does the Oversight Board have certain fiscal responsibilities pursuant to PROMESA, but there's also very fraught political and economic issues on the island with respect to the ongoing relationship between PREPA and the Commonwealth. And because it's last, and because there were a number of prior agreements, if you will, for the resolution of PREPA, the case has become uh, very, very hotly contested and difficult in ways that are not applicable in your garden variety, you know, huge mega cases, because it's not simply a negotiation between what I would call, you know, rational economic actors who either have been in as par players from the beginning or bought into the situation based on a particular, you know, litigation or other investment thesis. That has made it very, very difficult. But I am very determined, some would say stubborn, (laughs) and um, I don't intend to give up. And I remain charged with trying to pursue a mediated resolution and notwithstanding the very public opposition to the current plan of adjustment. That's exactly what I will do. I will will keep trying until, uh, until it's over. Perseverance generally rewards us all, I think. We've spent a lot of time on mediation so far. I'd really like to get into a round of questions about kind of your time on the bench. Uh, do you remember what your very first mega case was and how you kind of felt getting it going into it? Oh, wow. You're really asking me to go back back in the way back <laughs> machine. As I recall, my first two mega cases hit within a couple days of each other. One was called Innkeepers, uh, which gained some notoriety right off the bat. The other one was Boston Generating which also gained some notoriety. And I think it was uh, like the first time that I tried a case as a first year associate. I, I was just uh, kind of too new to be to be scared. I just kind of, <laughs> it just kind of did it. And it all worked out just fine. I've been told that Boston Generating now is a case that gets taught and the um, intercreditor issues that I decided there uh, have become settled law. In the innkeeper's case, that was really challenging when I issued an opinion that gained some notoriety, but it was drinking from a fire hose back in those days, just drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> you know, that's the exact same way that, that somebody at DebtWire described covering bankruptcy to me, the fire hose metaphor. Well, back in those days, and it was shortly after that, I got a case called Light Squared, which involved, on the one hand, there was the company, which was a Phil Falcone Harbinger-sponsored company. And on the other hand was Dish Networks and Charlie Ergen. And that case had everything, including my need to learn all about wireless spectrum right away. And in those days, and I don't know if this is still true, but the reporters from Reuters and the Journal, I don't think DebtWire was in existence then, would sit in the back of the courtroom and live tweet what was happening. And I recall that I would take a lunch break and go back into my chambers and my husband would call and he would say, oh, so you're on the lunch break. And I say, how in the world could you know that? He said, because the Twitter feed stopped. So (laughs) it made for some interesting times. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Now, you called Purdue the case of a lifetime earlier, but now we've got to talk a little bit about your other case of a lifetime, which is Lehman. Kind of a similar question to the last one. Kind of how do you remember the feeling of it, you know, hitting your desk, I'm sure with a thud, (laughs) especially considering you inherited it from Judge Peck partway through after he left the bench? 
That's right. So the joke that Judge Peck and I have is that he handed it off and said, it's basically done. Not much left for you to do. (laughs) Not accurate. Although with all the greatest, greatest, greatest respect to Judge Peck, the fact that he did what he did under the enormous pressure that was in existence at the time truly is a remarkable, remarkable personal and professional achievement. When he handed it over to me, there had been a litigation stay in place. And as he was walking out the door at one Bowling Green, that stay expired. And I spent five years being on trial in derivatives cases, mortgage-backed securities cases. And those trials went on for quite a long time. And I don't have to tell you the complexity of determining what the uh, appropriate way to close out a huge book of swaps and derivatives is. We must have done Oh, we must have done 10 trials between the mortgage-backed securities and the derivatives. The longest one was Lehman versus Citibank. That went on for 42 days, and we were only halfway done when it settled. So that was exhilarating. I frankly have no idea how I did it, <laughs> but <laughs> I think you just get into you know a headspace with the adrenaline running, and you just do that. So that was... Very, very gratifying. And on my very last day on the bench, I entered an order closing the broker-dealer case, the LBI case. So that was tremendously gratifying. And on the LBHI side, uh, literally everything was done. All the litigation was done. The case remains open so that the estate can continue to collect other assets for the benefit of creditors. Yes, case of a lifetime. And I'm very, very grateful that I was entrusted with that responsibility. So obviously that case involved a bunch of significant rulings, significant events and everything. I want to see what your experience has been like kind of observing your ruling on flip causes and safe harbor provisions from that case, kind of how you've observed it play out in the real world, what people have said to you about it, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's interesting. There hasn't been much on flip clauses because of the unique nature of that particular case. I do understand that a very specific and I guess uh, first of its kind ruling on some is to close out issues having to do with how you value a closeout of securities has become a seminal case over in, in the UK. So that's always surprising to me because I just approach these things as simply, you know, doing my job and doing the best that I can. But I understand that that's the decision in the Intel case that 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 has some legs. And fortunately for all concerned, I think the flip clause has not really been tested very much. I have watched with interest the cases on the on the safe harbor and the safe harbor, the scope of the safe harbor continues to expand in the Second Circuit. And that was actually uh, a, a little bit of a funny slash uncomfortable moment when I disagreed with Judge mm-hmm. Peck on one narrow point. But he and I remain fast friends. So all is well. So obviously, Lehman was a product of the the 08 crashes. And over your time on the bench, you've seen quite a few different distressed cycles, let's call them retail strain, oil and gas, COVID. For the last question here, I'd like you to get out your crystal ball a little bit. And, you know, where do you think the cycles are are going now? We're still feeling COVID pain and oil and gas is everywhere. I'm just kind of interested where you think the wheels are turning at this point. Yeah, I think the secondary fallout from COVID is going to continue in particular in the real estate sector. And I also see, unfortunately, many more cases in the mass tort sector, particularly in the sex abuse 
context. Uh, some of that, the success of some of that will depend a little bit on what the Supreme Court does in Purdue. But those are the two areas that I expect to see continued activity. And I think the retail side as well is going to see continued activity. Yeah, I think that all makes it uh, makes a lot of sense. Sorry, this is a lightning round one. Are you pleased that you did not catch one of the crypto cases during your time in the, on the bench? Or do you think you would have been happy to get the experience? Well, I've caught a crypto case now as a mediator. I am the court-appointed mediator to mediate the dispute between the estates of FTX and Voyager. I'm getting, uh, if not the you know, the seven course tasting menu, I'm, I'm getting a good experience with that, learning a lot about crypto. And I couldn't be in a more fascinating position than I am now to learn about that. I think to your point in the last question, we're going to see more of that as well. That market comes for us all eventually. There's no avoiding it. Yes, indeed. Well, Judge Chapman, it's been really great talking to you this afternoon. Thank you for taking the time to share your experiences and your thoughts with us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Take care.